Good morning, good morning. You are listening to Hofstra's Morning Wake-Up Call on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. You already know that this is the show where we talk about local, national, and international news. My name is Sibyl Ratto, and today I am not joined by my usual co-host. Today I'm joined by the wonderful Danny DiCrescenzo, sorry, who is replacing Eddie Fitzgerald. And we have a pretty interesting string of topics to talk about. We're going to talk about Alec Baldwin and the New Jersey governor's race, as well as vaccine inequity and um, the recent developments in the Brian Laundry case. Um, additionally, we have an interview to play regarding affordable housing. And as always, we will have our weekly Schmavonian report. But before we dive into all that good stuff, um, I want to know, Danny, how are you doing on this fine Friday morning? I am so excited to be doing morning wake-up call back-to-back days. The grind never stops. And it's so <laughs> nice to be reunited with you. The yes. last morning wake-up call we did was an entire year ago. It was. And it was, it was with Eddie. That was when we had four people. It was you, myself, uh, Eddie, and Sam Yarnell. Yes. All in Studio North and Studio South. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy to think about how long ago that was. And that was actually both our morning wake-up calls. Um, Debuts. Yeah. So that was like... That's pretty exciting to be reunited. Of course. And of course, we had the RTVF class together last yes. year, which was very fun. <laughs> yeah, honestly, it's great to be um, doing this show with you. Um, also, I'm like excited because it's almost Halloween. Oh, so yeah. my spirits are high. You got a costume? Um, okay, so I haven't like bought a costume yet. I'm deciding between, or maybe I might just do both since we have all of Hall Weekend. I want to do Penny Proud mm-hmm. from... Um, the Proud Family, and then I also might do Coraline. Ooh. Yeah. Do you have any, like, costume ideas? Yeah, I'm going to be Jim from The Office. I'm going to wear my oh, hair really? all shaggy. <laughs> I have white shirt, black tie, black pants, black shoes, you know, just the casual office look. And, of course, I'm going to have his uh, sleeves unbuttoned because he always wears his sleeves unbuttoned. Oh, really? Yeah, and I'm going to look at the camera whenever I talk to people. Like, I'm going to talk to people and then just look to the side and looking at camera. <laughs> Because <laughs> he always I does that. that. The gym That's really face. funny. Yeah, I'm not like a huge office office watcher, but like I know I, I think I would get the reference if like I saw yeah, it. We were talking about it yesterday because we were we were talking about memes, and then it just spiraled into our favorite shows, and then we just started talking about the office, and then <laughs> Becca was making fun of me because I like the office. It was a, it was a tough scene. It was a tough scene. Yeah, I mean I'm excited to see what your costume looks like. Yeah, it's not, give me nothing crazy. I also will be working the Halloween scavenger hunt that's going to happen on the 30th here at Hofstra, which is going to be very fun. Yeah, it's going to be super cool. If you're interested and you're on your Hofstra student, definitely definitely give it a look. If you're not doing anything on Halloween, I'll be there dressed as Jim and it'll be very fun. Okay, I'd never heard of that, but I'll definitely like check it out. Um, I guess we should like go into our first story. Of course, yeah. And um. We, we actually put this in as breaking news. I would play the breaking news bump, but I don't have it up right now from Newsline. <laughs> I don't want to steal their thunder because they probably talked about this last night. But I think, no, the first story didn't happen during Newsline because I'm pretty sure it happened late. Mm-hmm. So Alec Baldwin, he, I mean, this is just one of those bizarre stories that he shoots a prop gun and he killed one person on set while injuring another. He... The, the director of photography, Hel- Helena, is that how you say it? Helena um, Hutchins. Sure. Helena Hutchins was killed, and director Joel Souza, 48, was injured when Baldwin discharged a prop firearm on the set of the new movie Rust in Santa Fe County in New Mexico. 
And I mean, this took me by surprise. I was just hanging out in my dorm room, just like playing video games, whatever. And I checked my phone, I go, and it says Alec Baldwin killed somebody. I go, what? And it's just, it's heartbreaking for everyone involved. You know, it's just, it truly is. it's a tragedy on all fronts. Cause you know, Baldwin obviously racked with guilt, I'm sure. And yeah, I mean, there are pictures of him literally bent over. You can see how like, like destroyed yeah. he is. I mean, he's such it. a sweet guy and, you know, very funny, obviously yeah. very nice guy, very good actor. And I just feel awful for him. But more importantly, I feel awful for the family of the slain director of photography. And, you know, we, I hope that the director's doing all right. There's no criminal charges going on right now, but the investigation is still ongoing, according to the local sheriff's office. So... I don't know what to, we don't know what's going to happen. I don't think it's going to be anything like super scandalous, but I do think it's just sad. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. I mean, I was kind of saying this like before the show to you, but I didn't know that like prop guns were capable of actually killing people Mm -hmm. because like, I don't know, that kind of messes with like the point of it being a prop. Like I'm pretty sure that, um, this is like similar to the way that Bruce Lee's son died. Um, he, it wasn't a prop gun, but it was, I think, like a grenade or some type of explosive that ended up actually killing him. And it's just like bizarre to me that people's lives are in danger whenever there's a gun in a movie. And I was never aware of that until like this tragedy happened. Yeah. And, you know, film sets are pretty tight ships, especially nowadays with COVID. And just it, it's just so sad to see when it goes wrong like this. And and you just wonder what's going to happen now. And you know, they flew out the director of photography on a helicopter, but it was too late. Man, what a bummer, you know, to start off the morning. Yeah. But it's it's probably, it just, it had to be talked about, you know. It's one of those things you don't want to talk about, but you have to early on in the morning. But right. um, moving on from that, also, Spill and I are both from New Jersey, and there's some big news coming out of the Garden State that the governor's race is tightening up. Jack Chitterelli the Republican challenger to incumbent Democrat Phil Murphy is now polling within six percentage points, according to a poll conducted by Emerson College and PIX11. And they say that um, 7% of likely voters remain undecided, but 59% of those undecided voters are leaning Chitterelli, while 41% are leaning Murphy. And if you take those numbers into account, Chitterelli pulls even closer, 52 to 48%, trailing Murphy by four. So... And again, Murphy opened up this race with a double-digit lead as late as last month. He had a nine-point lead, and now he's shrinking. And I think that it's an example that um, Chitterelli's attack on taxes is working because all he talks about is Murphy's financial uh, policies and his tax record. And there's that ad that you always see. I'm sure you always see it on YouTube because they probably know you're from New Jersey or something where (laughs) it's him saying, uh, if you're a one-issue voter – New Jersey's probably not your state because if you're all about taxes, we're not probably not your state. And then Chitterelli obviously attacks that line. I think that line of attack is working because, you know, taxes are pretty topical. And it says in this article that I have on the Hill, taxes emerged as a key issue among New Jersey's in the poll. 51% of respondents said taxes should be the next governor's first priority. So it's a very topical issue. And I think Chitterelli's attack on an issue that's so popular is working. But I want to get your thoughts, Sabelle. Yeah, I mean, as someone from New Jersey, this is definitely interesting news. Um, I am interested to see like just how things play out because um, it seems like most of like what Shitterelli has like going for him is like kind of uh, 
like kind of mudslinging at Murphy. So mm-hmm. like I do want to see like what happens in the near future with this governor's race. Although what I will say about Murphy's campaign is that they um, made that very vulgar ad that attacked him on Chitterelli's support of swearing. I believe that was the Oh, really? Case. I missed that one. Yeah. Um, released it. The De- New Jersey Democratic State Committee released a new ad attacking Chitterelli for his previous support of a local on swearing. The 22nd digital ad was marked with colorful language, particularly F-bombs, according to this article uh, verbatim. So now there's it's getting dirty on both sides because as the as Murphy loses his once pretty dominant lead, he is feeling the pressure now because Chitterelli has a line of attack. I think today in politics, you really just need that consistent line of attack on mm-hmm. somebody that's going to stick every time. Like you saw it in the um, presidential campaign, Trump versus Biden. Trump's whole thing was that Biden was old, right? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. When you set expectations for a candidate that low, whenever they exceed it, it looks great on them. So anytime Biden appeared even somewhat articulate when he spoke and he didn't stutter, didn't trip over his words, mm-hmm. then that attack falls flat. So, and you saw it too with the COVID thing when Trump made fun of Biden for adhering to COVID protocols and he himself got COVID. I bring up those two examples because it shows that as opposed to Trump, a Republican who failed to land attacks against a Democrat, Chitterelli is succeeding in that he is has his one issue that he's going to hammer away at for the remainder of this campaign. And clearly half the people in New Jersey see this as the number one thing. So of mm-hmm. course he's going to go all in. And I think that's what is going to be the wave of the future in terms of campaigning. It's going to be What's the one Achilles heel of the candidate we're running against? Just go at that. Because the more you make the race about other things, the more likely it is that attacks don't land. Right. I mean, it's kind of interesting. Like, it's almost petty the type of, um, you know, things that, like, political opponents use against each other. Like, swearing and, um, you know, wearing a mask that's too large or being old. Like, that has nothing to do with politics. And yet, like, a lot of times it becomes such a big part of, like, their campaign. And it's interesting because people, like, buy into it. Like, mm-hmm. it it influences their opinion of, like, those, like, you know, government officials. Well, that's just because cool, everything, you know, everything becomes a meme at some mm-hmm. point. You know, it's that's human just... human nature. <laughs> it's human nature. And, I mean, I think New Jersey has a tendency to be pretty petty about things. I mean, if you're... No, if you're in the left lane, you're only going 60. You're probably going to get, you're not going to get uh, good looks on the on the on the Garden State Parkway. Yeah, for sure. So, <laughs> New Jerseyans are petty in that sense when they're driving, at least. Mm-hmm. So I'm not surprised by pettiness in the governor's race, but obviously nationwide, it's also a problem. But this is, I am definitely interested in what happens now because I kind of wrote this off as. You know, Murphy has a good wave of the COVID thing going, and he still has good marks on that, but only barely. So I'm excited to see how this plays out. I'm definitely going to go home to vote at some point in this election because obviously from New Jersey, native son. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what's going on in the Garden State. But we have a very um, – but before we get to our main number one story, we have a package that I meant to play yesterday from Becca Williams, my co-host, and she did an interview with Jacqueline Simone. She's the senior policy analyst for the Coalition for the Homeless, which is the organization that oversees all the shelters in New York City. And they talked about affordable housing and eviction prevention, along with some other things that Becca neglected neglected to mention in the brief she wrote me. <laughs> so I guess we're in for a couple surprises. Are you ready to go, Sibyl? Ready to hear this? Yeah, for sure. All right. Without further ado, here is Becca Williams. 
Today, I'm joined by Jacqueline Simone, the Senior Policy Analyst at Coalition for the Homeless New York City, to discuss homelessness and affordable housing in New York. In Simone's role as a policy analyst, she works on large-scale solutions to homelessness. However, the Coalition provides programs to assist New Yorkers with immediate and long-term effects. Coalition for the Homeless has been around for 40 years, and we do both direct services and advocacy. Because the coalition is the court-appointed and city-appointed independent monitor of the city's shelter system, we don't operate shelters, but we do operate some permanent housing. The Coalition for the Homeless, as well as many other local organizations, offer permanent housing with no time limitations on their guests' stay. During COVID-19, it also provided an alternative to overcrowded high-risk areas like shelters. Permanent housing is a safer and more stable environment than shelters. American Health and Drug Benefits also states that permanent housing reduces health care costs for taxpayers by 59% and emergency department costs by 61%. Now this is permanent housing, so people stay there for a very long time. We have a very low turnover rate, and that's the ideal, right? To, to ensure that people really get the stability that they need after experiencing homelessness. Again, the goal is obviously if someone's household composition changes or their situation changes and they want to leave, they're allowed to. There's nothing stopping them from doing that, but we don't want to force anyone out of the program. It is much more cost efficient to help someone pay off their rent arrears than to have them become homeless. So from a fiscal responsibility perspective, you can give someone $1,000 to pay their rent. That's much cheaper than the tens of thousands of dollars it would cost if that household was in shelter. While providing resources to the homeless is essential, Simone says the best way to assist the New York homeless population is to stop it before it happens. So our eviction prevention program helps people who had a financial setback of some sort and they can pay their rent going forward, but they need help paying off rental arrears and avoiding eviction and homelessness. Rental arrears occur when one or more payments are passed due. This is also referred to as back rent. According to a study done by the New York University Furman Center, 55% of New York's low-income renters owe back rent. And the city also, thanks to advocacy by, by us and many other organizations and directly impacted individuals, enacted a first in the nation right to counsel program a few years ago. So that means that all low-income people who are facing eviction have a lawyer who can help walk them through the very confusing housing court process and also connect them to community resources that can get at the root issues. That program was launched in 2017. It was being rolled out by zip code over the course of five years. And actually during the pandemic, given the number of people who are at risk of eviction, the city council voted to accelerate the implementation. And currently anyone who's low income and facing eviction in the city is guaranteed access to a legal services provider at no cost to them. That program has been hugely impactful. We've seen evictions go down in the city in the years leading up to the pandemic. It's interesting because we've actually seen in recent years, eviction dropped from being the number one driver of family homelessness to the number two driver as these investments that the city and advocacy organizations have made have really started to reduce the number of evictions overall. During COVID-19, the share of renters owing $10,000 or more went up 140% from 280 households to 672. Initiatives have been put in place in response to the spike. During the pandemic, we've seen a series of eviction moratoria, however. So the housing courts have not been evicting people in the same way that they were prior to the pandemic. And we've been increasing the flexibility of our programs so that we can still connect people to those rental 
rental arrears grants without, you know, forcing them to be in the housing court process. Affordable housing in New York is a major issue, especially in lower income households that pay more than half of their income to rent. With little housing options to choose from, residents become rent burdened, causing them to be vulnerable to housing insecurity. Given the economic upheaval of the COVID-19 pandemic, we have seen a worsening of that crisis in recent months. We always say that it's hardest for people who are earning the lowest incomes or people who are on fixed incomes to afford rent in New York City or elsewhere. So to put that into context, in New York City, a renter would need to make about $35 per hour just to afford a modest one-bedroom apartment in New York City or about $40 per hour to afford a two-bedroom apartment. Now, that's actually more than double the $15 an hour minimum wage. So we actually have a significant number of people who are working, especially people working these essential frontline jobs who don't earn enough money to afford rent because of that huge gap between incomes and rents in New York City. According to a Community Service Society New York survey conducted in August 2020, 33% of New York households experienced job or income loss since the beginning of the pandemic. Organizations like Coalition for the Homeless offer assistance. However, funds are limited. The most vulnerable to homelessness are prioritized. Others will turn to the federal government. In the course of the pandemic, the federal government also allocated billions of dollars for emergency rental assistance. This is huge because it was a recognition that we needed to help people pay off their rent arrears instead of allowing them to become homeless. So that program, which is called ERAP or the Emergency Rental Assistance Program, is being run by the State Office of Temporary and Disability Assistance. That does have a pretty cumbersome application process. And there were definitely some hiccups initially when the state first launched that program. But we're hearing that they have really ramped up the applications and the issuing of grants to vulnerable households. It's great that Coalition for the Homeless has an eviction prevention program. But when you see the scale of the need, particularly during the pandemic, it's clear that we also need significant government resources. And that's where initiatives like ERAP are so important. For those who are against using government funding for low-income at-risk households, Simone highlighted a few ways eviction prevention assists the entire community. We know that in New York City, one out of every 10 public school students is homeless, and that includes people who are doubled up with another family, for example, not just people who are in shelters. And we know that homeless children, because of the instability and trauma of homelessness, struggle to keep up with their stably housed peers in school. If we want to address educational success, we need to also address housing and ensure kids have a safe place to do school. During the pandemic, especially, most of the shelters didn't have Wi-Fi. So kids were expected to do remote learning without having access to a way of signing into the virtual classroom. We actually had to work with the Legal Aid Society to bring litigation to get the city to install Wi-Fi in shelters. So education is one thing. And that also goes for employment stability as well. Like I said, we have a scenario right now now where the housing is so expensive that people have to earn about twice the minimum wage to comfortably afford an apartment. Now, in order for a society to function, you need to have a place where people are able to live. Because if people who are pouring your coffee or who are cleaning your building or doing any of these really essential jobs can't afford to live in the city and they leave, or if they lose their jobs because of the instability of homelessness, that also impacts everyone else, right? I think having an economically diverse city is really important, but we need to make sure that people actually have truly affordable housing that they can live in 
in in order to to succeed. There's a whole variety of other ways. I think also just from a pure racial justice standpoint too, everyone should be looking to rectify many of the inequities that we have in our housing market because, you know, when we talk about homelessness, about 90% of people who are in shelters are black or Latinx, and that's a direct result of racism in our housing systems dating back since the founding of the US. So I think there are a variety of reasons why community members should support these issues, you know, either from like more of a self-centered how how are my tax dollars being used, but also just in terms of the broader justice issues. Thank you to Jacqueline Simone, the senior policy analyst at Coalition for the Homeless New York City for speaking with me today. Once again, I'm Becca Williams and you're listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. Did you know that you can get closer to the morning wake-up call? Follow us on social media at WRHU News to see the latest from WRHU and to see what guests are appearing the night before the show. Now, let's get back to the morning wake-up call. Morning wake up call. Morning wake up call. And we are back. Thanks again to Becca Williams for that package. We would have played it yesterday, but we just had such a good conversation on the Thursday show, as we often do, that it just had to wait until the Friday show until finally it hit the airwaves. But we are moving right along into what I think might be one of the most interesting stories I've certainly covered in my time here at the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call. So, Bill, why don't you talk, take us through it? Um, so vaccine inequity, especially in the global south, in part stems from the companies behind the vaccines being reluctant to share their shots. However, there appears to be a glimmer of hope to help even vaccine distribution. Um, the World Health Organization has hired a South African pharmaceutical startup called African Bio- Biologics and vaccines to reverse engineer the Moderna vaccine's recipe as best as they can in a $100 million effort. The plan is that once a functional mRNA vaccine is developed and produced on an industrial scale, Afrigan could act as a teaching center for the development of vaccines. So, um, Danny, like, what are your thoughts about this? I think this is just so cool. You know, it's it's like a bake. It's like a baking show, you know, where you compete and try and come up with the best recipe. But now it's more like you're stealing the recipe that already works. But it's just sad that it has to come to this and we're pouring in millions of dollars to copy something that already exists and already works. I mean, we're the human race. We shouldn't have to pull teeth to share life-saving technology. And we're essentially just seeing a medical apartheid, apartheid in terms of vaccines. And as um, Dr. Tedros Adhamon Ghebreyesus, the Director General of the World Health Organization, has said, uh, vaccine inequity is the world's biggest obstacle to ending this pandemic and recovering from COVID-19, which I wholeheartedly agree with because it's so easy to forget in at least the West, the West, quote, quote unquote, that we are pretty lucky, you know, in America, North America and Europe, vaccine distribution and availability are widespread and life, well, I wouldn't call it normal, is approaching it, I want to say. I'm saying that with very, I'm using the word normal very loosely because <laughs> we don't know what, I mean, we thought this was going to be over over the summer, but clearly our hopes were dashed. Yeah. So I think people forget that in the global South, particularly, we see horrendous numbers of people who are not vaccinated and the pandemic is still raging on as if it's only just begun there. It's still 
the worst is still going on there and we still haven't done our part to share with the world. And that's why the World Health Organization is against boosters because they're saying, why don't we give the shots to people who need them first? So that those are my thoughts. I think it's cool. It's definitely cool, <laughs> but it's sad that it has to be that way. Yeah, it is sad. I feel like this pandemic showed like um, the human race is sort of true colors in that sense because like we're seeing how, um, you know, it isn't first priority to take care of like the entire world. It's like um, there is a lot of inequity regarding the vaccine, but hopefully like this will make it so that numbers like across the globe go down because um, they're rising in some places like here we're getting close to normal but I think in the UK like numbers are like a spe- they're like, shooting up yeah they're getting increasingly high so I don't know I mean we'll see what we'll see what happens with this yeah and I think that it's great that the World Health Organization is funding companies not based in America or Europe they're funding startups this is a startup. Imagine mm-hmm. being a startup and being like, here, here's $100 million, reverse engineer the COVID vaccine. You're like, what? Right? <laughs> um, I think it's great that they're actually putting money towards causes that can help the region that they're in because say they do figure it out, which I think they will. I mean, because come on, already we already know it exists. There is a goal. Yeah. It's already there. They know they just have to get there. They do figure it out and they do have the money to produce it on an industrial scale, helping at least South Africa, if not the entire continent, then they already have a stake in, all right, this is how we help mRNA vaccine development and not just for COVID, maybe in the future when things are better, I hope they talk about mRNA vaccines for other diseases that maybe we don't have great immune defense against. So it's just, it's not investing in a recipe per se, it's investing in the human race all over the world to say, this is how we're going to fight disease. Because I think we're too busy worrying about ourselves to think about the fact that diseases impact everyone. We should be, we're only as strong as our weakest link in terms of how pandemics spread. I mean, just because we all thought when we just heard, oh, there's some guy in Wuhan who has a weird bat virus. We're like, mm-hmm. ah, pff, not gonna come here, no way. Yeah. I remember, I remember we were just joking about it casually in high school. You know, back when I was still in high school, wow, time flies. <laughs> and we were like, and we were just like, oh, COVID, like whatever. That's just like a weird thing in China. Yeah. Boom, comes here. You never know. No, I never honestly know. remember like, I was actually in the WRHU training class when one of my friends um, came up to me and he was like, oh, you heard there's a case like in New, um, there's one case in New York of the coronavirus. And I was like, okay, and? Like, what's one piece oh, going to do? Oh. <laughs> little did we know. Yeah, little did we know. That was little freshman year. Little did we know. Feels like forever ago, but also not that long ago. Yeah. And here's the thing. I just have the numbers pulled up. So we're actually declining in the United States, um, but it's not something crazy. It's, it's Well, it is a pretty steep decline over the last two weeks or so. We're still averaging around 80,000 cases a day. Mm-hmm. And they said that it would peak around mid-September, October-ish. But I'm worried about the holiday season. Yeah, and I'm worried about that, too, because this is going to be our first winter, um, you know. With, with a the, vaccine. Yeah, and with the state fully open. Yeah. Because um, last winter, numbers went crazy, and the state wasn't even fully open. Luckily, we do have the vaccine, and, you know, a 
I don't want to say good number of people are vaccinated, but a decent number. Yeah, pl- plurality. Nearly decent. Yeah. yeah. Um, number of people are vaccinated. So hopefully that like protects the state and the country and the world from um, facing the numbers of cases and deaths that we saw last year, last winter. But I don't know. I'm kind of worried about it, especially with like the variants. Like we're not exactly sure about um, how that's going to play into it. Yeah. And think about this ties into the story about the startup in Africa. Travel is going to be a lot more tribal in the sense that you know people are only going to travel from countries that are pretty safe the tra- mm-hmm. the the travel to other southern nations in the global south is going to plummet because who wants to go there right there it's the fear is that you're going to get it yeah. even if you are vaccinated because the numbers are so bad and that's going to hurt the economies of those countries and it's going to hurt a lot of like tourism is a very multifaceted air function for many countries it's going to hurt them in a way it's going to hurt the global south so the fact that travel isn't going to open up on a global scale, it's going to open up on a regional scale, that too is awful to hear, especially considering that we are going to come up upon one of the big, busiest travel seasons in, of the year with the holidays coming up. So that too is, I hope hopefully that vaccine distributions in other areas besides you know Europe and America could help alleviate that fear of tourism to other places and help these countries get people coming in from all over the world because that's that's really the legacy of COVID. it kind of stopped us feeling like a global community it made it feel like oh now we're just kind of worried about ourselves mm-hmm. yeah for sure um it's kind of encouraging though to hear that like this is like happening in africa because it makes me think that like hopefully africa is gonna you know get the sort of vaccine distribution that they need yeah and i hope this is just the first I hope not just because it's in South Africa, maybe I hope they do it in West Africa and East Africa, mm-hmm. Sub-Saharan Africa, Saharan Africa, wherever, right? Yeah, Especially in exactly. nations and maybe in the South Pacific too, like those island nations have terrible vaccination rates, some of them at least. And you just hope that this can be a beacon or hopefully, so we don't waste money, Moderna comes around and says, all right, we're going to share our vaccine now. Especially given... Well, I mean, we've heard about Delta Plus, like in and out of the news, which I think is an awful name. It sounds like a streaming service. <laughs> like, come on. You're right. It does. They I could never have thought about it. That they way. could have came up with a better name. <laughs> like, they. I mean, I thought they really they were. It was good when they renamed them after Greek letters. But like calling it Delta Plus, like, no, yeah. call it like Delta Two or Delta Delta Alpha. Yeah. Like, come on. Delta Plus doesn't have the same it impact. It just doesn't because I'm like, I already have Disney Plus and ESPN Plus. I don't need the <laughs> Delta Plus. Yeah, exactly. And uh, oh, we have uh, Dexter wants to contribute to this conversation. What's up, Dex? COVID-20 would be an awesome name. Oh, mm. I feel like that would discourage me. I'm already because I don't know. It's like COVID the sequel. It's a little depressing. And also, is that how it works? Like, is it that now that it's like you know, leaked into 2020 that it would be called COVID-20? Because I did hear about, like, you know, I've heard it referred to as that or, like, the possibility of it being referred to as that. Do you know, Danny? I actually don't know because the the official name is SARS-CoV-2. And I guess it's named because of COVID-19 because it came out in well, 2019. 2019. Yeah. I say came out like as if it was like a movie <laughs> or a video game. Severe, because the real name is Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2. 
I think COVID-19 might just be like because of the year. So maybe. Yeah. Um, But I mean, the the fact that it's, I don't think we're going to see a COVID-20 because the disease right now, because here's the thing, diseases adapt based on their success or their failure. And the fact that COVID-19 was so successful in transmitting, there's no incentive for the disease to develop a sequel to say. It's just going to have variants that are more effective, right? right. It doesn't need to ha- reinvent itself. That, so that's why I think that we're not really going to see a COVID-20 for a long time or a COVID-21, 22, 23, whatever the case, because COVID-19 is going to probably be around for a long, long time in its base form and its variant form for a while. So that's why I think we're not going to see any other versions as much as we are going to see variants. Which also, yeah. terrible timing because when Loki came out, all everyone wanted to talk about was variants. Right? Yes. I, no, I remember watching Loki and like that word was just triggering every time um, they mentioned I'm it. I'm like, don't even get me started. And yeah, then, and it was like just as variants were starting to like, become like a larger topic. Um, so that was like interesting timing. Funny story, my brother worked, worked at an ice cream shop for a, while, for a while and he worked with two Bellas, but one of the Bellas, like he was better friends with so we called the one bella just like bella and then the other one we called them bella variant <laughs> and <laughs> she's like funny. why do you keep calling me that and she's like oh like you're not the original bella <laughs> and she's like but i'm bella too she's like no you're oh, the no, bella variant bella. <laughs> We're the, you're the better variant actually <laughs> <laughs> that's funny yeah so um loki is i mean it's just weird how covid just it just hit all the notches on the pop culture ladder. Yeah, because it definitely changed, like, the connotation of quarantine for me, too. Yeah. Like, you know, watching shows where they have to quarantine, I'm like, ugh. Yeah. Me. Was, bad chills. You ever find it uncomfortable? Because, like, in TV shows, in new shows, they don't have the characters wearing masks and stuff. And, yeah. like, I'm watching, like, the new season of, like, uh, You or whatever, and... They reference that COVID still exists, but nobody's like wearing masks or like acting like people in a world with COVID would. So I'm just like, uh, what? I know. It's it's awkward because you think about art that comes out now, books, movies, are they just going to act like it's not happening, right? It's kind of weird. It's like, we're just going to ignore it. Imagine like you wrote a book that takes place this year. The difficult question for an author is, do you include to your character's social distance, wear masks, or do you just ignore it? The most significant thing about this year, are you going (laughs) to... Yeah, I mean, that's, like, something that's, like, interesting as, like, TV shows, like, are starting to come back or either, or even just, like, you know, premiering, um, because it's, like, you know, seeing what decision they make. Like, there's this one show I watch um, called Grownish, where they kind of made it so that, like, the season ended with the news of, like, um, the coronavirus existing, and then, like, the next season started with it, like, being over within, it seemed like a matter of months. They didn't really specify how long it was, but everyone was, like, you know, moving on, like, to the next years and, like, as if, like, nothing happened. So it's, like, I don't know. It is, like, interesting, like, what the best decision is when it comes to, like you said, books, movies, TV shows. That's just writing, I'm not going to lie. It's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a freeform show. It's a freeform show. Oh, it's so a freeform like, show. It's a yeah. Too, like. ah. Yeah. I mean, I do love that show, but I don't have like the best expectations when it comes to like, 
you know, um, timelines, mm-hmm. the way they establish timelines. But um, see, because it frustrates you because you're like, it's not fair. Like, why do they get to live a normal life? You know, yeah, but even yeah. if it, and the, but then there's also shows like Grey's Anatomy. I don't know if you watch Grey's no, Anatomy. No, I don't. But I have friends who do. Yeah. I mean, I stopped watching it because it's been 18 seasons. It's yeah. too long. But this um, I think two seasons ago, like it was all COVID. That's all it was. And it was like watching it was like too much. Like it was too much to handle because we were still like dealing with, um, you know, somewhat of a lockdown. I mean, things were opening up, but not fully. And it's like, you know, in some sense, you watch TV to like escape from all that tragedy. And then like when you're watching Grey's Anatomy, you're just constantly reminded of how tragic it is because it takes place in in a hospital. So they have to like, you know, show how stressful it is for the doctors and dramatize it. Of course, because it's like, you know, a TV show, but it's like, you know, do you want to stay realistic and, you know, kind of depress people or do you want to like, you know, create this fantasy land where like COVID never happened? Yeah. And the irony is the franchise that gets a pass on portraying COVID is the Marvel Cinematic Universe, because by the time Thanos came around, it was already past 2020. Yeah. So they could be like, well, like in our universe, it never happened. So they're like, oh, we're, yeah. we're, we got, we got to pass. We got to pass. <laughs> we, we just skipped that whole part of, you know. Well, they predicted the future and they get to say, well, we can just keep going with this future. So they, mm-hmm. wow, lucky them, you know. Lucky them. Lucky them. <laughs> but um, we are now going into our report with uh, Dexter Shamo. Shem- Shmavonian. Shmavonian. You could just call me Shmavi. Shmavi. Dexter Dexter Shmavi. Dexter Shmavi. So, Dexter, what is your report about today? Well, first we got a former Minneapolis police officer who's received a new sentence after his initial one was thrown out. Along with the House of Representatives, they voted to hold a former Trump advisor in contempt, and the Federal Reserve issued a ban on federal policymakers holding stocks all of that and more on today's edition of the Shmavonian Report. Oh, I am so excited to hear my first Shmavonian Report. And I heard that nine Republicans voted to hold Bannon in contempt, which is pretty insane. Nine of them total. That's yeah, a lot. nine and then the rest of the party. Yeah, but yeah. again, the 10 voting to impeach Trump is the most bipartisan impeachment ever. So That is. It's yeah. it's not it's unprecedented, even though it sounds small. There, there's even two... Two Republicans that are actually on the January 6th committee, which yeah. is, it shouldn't be that surprising or impressive, but it it is. Yeah. No, and I think that's a great story, and I can't wait to hear it in the report. Hello. Welcome back to the Shmavonian Report. I'm Dexter Shmavonian. For our first story, former Minneapolis police officer Muhammad Noor has been resentenced to 57 months in prison for the killing of Justine DeMond. The shooting took place on July 15, 2017, and Noor was initially sentenced to 12 and a half years before it was thrown out by the Minnesota State Supreme Court in September. This led to his charge being changed to second-degree manslaughter, which led to yesterday's hearing. These factors of endangering the public make your crime of manslaughter appropriate for high end of the guideline spot. I hereby sentence you to the Commissioner of Corrections for a period of 57 months. That sound was courtesy of WCCO CBS Minnesota. Don DeMond, the victim's fiance, spoke of the new sentence, saying, I still cry so often, and I miss her deeply. 
However, he also went on to say that he believes she would not have held a grudge, saying, No doubt she would have forgiven you, Muhammad, for your inability to handle your emotions that night. For our next story, the House of Representatives has voted to hold former top Trump advisor Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress after defying a subpoena issued to him by the committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. On this vote, the yeas are 229, the nays are 202, the resolution is adopted, and without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid on the table. That sound is courtesy of CBS Evening News. The vote ended with a tally of 229 to 202 in favor of holding Bannon with all but nine of the GOP lawmakers involved in the process voting no. The vote sends the matter to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, where the D.C. prosecutors will decide whether to pursue criminal charges to be presented in front of a grand jury. Lastly, the Federal Reserve has issued sweeping bans in response to controversies stemming from U.S. policymakers' investment practices. The new laws restrict members of the Federal Open Market Committee as well as senior staff to exclusively diversified assets, such as mutual funds. Basically, they prevent uh, Powell, the other Fed uh, governors, the Fed uh, uh, senior staff, and the Fed bank president and their senior staff from owning basically anything other than diversified investments like mutual funds. I mean, it's very plain vanilla. That sound is courtesy of Bloomberg Markets and Finance. Federal officials in the United States can no longer hold shares in specific companies, nor can they invest in individual bonds, hold agency securities, or derivative contracts. Officials will also have to give 45 days notice before buying or selling any securities that they are still permitted to have. The reasoning behind these bans is to prevent insider trading, as many high-ranking government officials have used their positions to manipulate the stock market to their advantage. That's all for today's edition of the Schmavonian Report on the Hoster Morning Wake Up Call. Don't forget to tune in next week and remember, stay Schmavi. Long Island's largest radio news team brings you the Associated Press award winning program, Newsline. Weekdays at 5 30 p.m. Exclusively on WRHUFM and WRHU.org Radio Hofstra University. Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call. Morning Wake Up Call. Okay, and we're back. Um, you're still listening to Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call on 88.7 FM WRHU. Um, that was Dexter's Schmavonian report. So thank you so much, Dexter, for well, you're that welcome. report. You're welcome. My pleasure. And yeah. yeah, we have one more story to go here, and it is the one of the closing chapters in the Gabby Petito case. It is about the fact that on Wednesday, authorities found partial skeletal remains as a search for Brian Laundrie, her former boyfriend. The remains were found to belong. The re- remains were found to belong to him after a review, after a review of dental records. A little over a month ago, the FBI had declared Laundrie a person of interest in the disappearance and later murder of Gabby Petito. And according to the FBI, the remains, as well as a few of his belongings, were found in an area that up until recently had been underwater. So. Obviously, this is pretty big in one of the biggest crime stories, I think, in a ma- couple of years mm-hmm. in this country. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I as like the story develops, it just starts to like feel like more and more like bizarre. Like, I feel like 
normally um, cases like, you know, such as murder are kind of just like, you know, they kind of go the same way. But this is very different in that, like, the person who most of America believes is the person who killed um, Gabby Petito. Like, we thought that he was kind of just on the run. And then we find his remains. And that kind of makes me question, like, you know, what, you know, is actually happening. Um, I'm, I mean, have you have you been following the the Gabby Petito case? Not really. Dexter, what do you what are you what are your thoughts? Well, she mentioned that them finding his body and him being dead makes it less likely that he was the one that killed Petito, but there is the possibility that he killed Petito and also killed himself. There's, yeah. Just cuz he's dead doesn't mean he's innocent and obviously nothing's confirmed. Yeah. But you shouldn't count him out just because he died. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I sorry, go uh, ahead, uh, Danny. I'm just going to say I haven't been following it too too closely. Obviously, the big stuff when it comes out. I remember I was engineering newsline the day that they found her found her remains. Mm-hmm. So, obviously it's taken a few twists and turns over the couple weeks that it's really been a search really and I think yeah. that this could answer a lot of questions, but it could also raise a lot more considering that, you know, maybe they I think they said it found this journal Mm-hmm. Along the belonging, so maybe they could find some things that he wrote in there that could shed some light on some things, or maybe things that only make things more unclear. And I, I, yeah, I mean, the story is definitely like tragic all around, but it is raising questions because another like interesting like thing about um, them finding him is that his family is the one who led them to that location. Yeah, um, and his family has been like very involved in searching for him, but I mean. I don't know. Another, like, thing that I wanted to bring up is that around, like, five bodies were found, like, as, like, the search for um, Brian Laundrie was, like, you know, in progress. And I find that, like, I don't think they were linked to um, his murder, but it just, like, makes you think, like, um, you know, this case got so much attention and that's definitely been a point of controversy. Like, why Gabby Petito over, like, so many people who've gone missing? And I think that that kind of brought up the the question of like, okay, well, so the police like and the FBI could find people if they wanted to. This, this, I mean, if this isn't laundry that did it, this and those other, those other dead bodies are also related to it. And it's not, they're just not completely separate. This, this goes deep. This could be a, this could be a serial killer. It could be something completely different we really have no idea what this is but this is going to be it's going to be a while before we know everything about what actually happened and it, it's it's really just just crazy how this is happening and i really can't eat, like i can't even think of what to say about it but it's all i'm going to say is that this could be much bigger than what we think yeah, I mean, I haven't heard anything about, like, a serial killer. I think it's just one of those things. I say one of those things, like, it's such a casual occurrence to find, like, a bunch of bodies. But I think it's just um, that in that area that that just happened to be where, like, a lot of murderers would, like, you know, get rid of um, the bodies. But, like, I think... Are, the, are there that many murders in that area? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't know that much about it. It's just, like, that's what... You know, that's what a lot of people's reactions were. It was like, so the police could find it, 
could find them if they like wanted to because if they'd searched as hard for like the people who were found like they would have been found earlier their families could have you know found peace earlier um danny do you have any thoughts about this i just think that as we close this chap close this chapter and hopefully hopefully it's not as deep as dexter hope Dexter yeah. has alluded to. Hopefully, it's not that complicated. I, I'm not saying it definitely is. I'm. I was. I, I, I was just pointing that yeah. out as a possibility. I hope There's it's not. No guarantee. I hope it's simple. I. I hope for an Occam's razor solution that the simplest explanation is the truest one. In that, he. We know who the killer is quickly, and we can answer most, if not all, questions that remain about this case. I just think going back to your point, Sibyl, about the attention this case brought. I hope that it does kind of make us understand, you know, what kind of grabs our attention and how that can be influenced by the media or bias towards certain stories. And it's not saying that any story is more important than the other. It's just understanding that just because one story gets all the attention, it doesn't invalidate other stories who people who go tragically missing or are killed and with mysterious circumstances. And her, the whole saga I wrote in my talking points, the, um, of course, the missing white woman syndrome, and I think, as I keep saying, as we move forward with this now and we're getting into the hopefully the closing stages, we understand and we as a society can have a dialogue, uh, social commentary on, you know, what what deserves our attention. And it's not just one crime sweeping story that captures our imaginations because of how vague it is and mysterious. It's also what deserves to be talked about uh, the na- the native and indigenous people who go missing every year, the black people who go missing every year, the Latina people who go missing every year. It's not just one white girl who goes missing and that's all we're focused on right now. It's her and everyone else. Cause it's just, that's, right. and it felt like it got to the point where this was everything. This was the entire news cycle at one point when it was really like, oh, she was cross country with the boyfriend. Oh, like they had a, they argued, oh, this, that, like, of course you report on that, but it felt like every minute addition to the story was front page news but and that's crazy considering how vicious our news cycle is these days considering what covid and what's happening in washington so hopefully it has the post-mortem as a society we say this story is important the story is sad the story is tragic but just because one story is tragic doesn't invalidate the newsworthiness of other stories right i mean we kind of talked about like this whole thing about like the missing white woman syndrome a few weeks ago on like a different um morning wake up friday morning wake up uh call and like eddie and i were saying that um you know obviously that doesn't mean that we think that her case should receive less attention i think that it's getting the amount of attention that it should but at the same time all those other people who've gone missing whose cases have kind of been dismissed they should have gotten that same attention exactly and it shouldn't be that because she is a white woman or because she is um you know a social media influencer that she gets more attention um and you know i say that with like the most sympathy towards her family who's going through like you know the worst thing imaginable but um yeah it is kind of like frustrating to see that like how possible it is because when i heard that she was missing i'm like okay well things like this happen and people don't get found for a long time and then the police found her within like you know you know maybe this case is different from others but still like the police found her in not that much time and unfortunately unfortunately like she you know was already dead but 
I mean, it just shows that, you know, if they wanted to, they could. Yeah. And it's, again, of course, it definitely has a almost a crime show feel. So it many, does. It does. No, it's, it's interesting. But just because something is interesting and it gets attention, it doesn't make it, it like I, I keep saying, it doesn't make it worthy of invalidating other cases like this. Just because you get attention doesn't mean it's more important. Every missing yeah. person is important. It's a human being, right? So that's, I think, the principle that we need to understand that this, the, the saga shouldn't consume everything because that's not just not healthy. Yeah, it's also kind of disturbing to me how like this whole thing has kind of been like like sensationalized almost. Yes, yes. On I'm so glad you used that um, word. Yeah, it just seems like people are making this into like you said. I mean, I know you didn't mean it in this way, but it's you know just like a crime show situation where they're talking about it as if it's like this like fandom that you like um, you know, you talk about as if it isn't like someone's real life, like yeah. the way they talk about both Brian Laundry and Gabby Petito. Yeah. And it's offensive to them the yeah. way that it's covered in, in that sort of way, because then it, it, again, sensationalizes and dramatizes, I use that word pretty, in a pretty negative light in terms of treating the case as not even like a real thing and more of a, a story, mm-hmm. like a story that isn't based in a story, like a story that could be exaggerated and hyped up, but it's not you should you you just be objective when you cover this stuff and i feel like objectivity is getting lost in the trend of fusing news with i don't want to say entertainment but with well, i guess that's the best word i could use for yeah. this sort of thing i mean it has become almost entertainment and that's like very disturbing yeah like, um yeah, but like as like a society, I feel like we do like fuse those two together, news and entertainment, and kind of make it like one in the same thing. Um, but hopefully, like the lesson learned from this case, well, it doesn't seem like the lesson is being learned because people continue to like sort of make this into, um, you know, like I said, like some sort of fandom. If you're like interested in this case, um, but yeah, I mean, hopefully, moving forward, like. <laughs> society as a whole can stop doing that. I don't know what would get them to stop, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. I think that's a good sentiment. And we're just about at the end of the show. So do you guys have any closing thoughts before we sign off? Um, I don't think I have any. Uh, I kind of just hope that all our listeners, no matter where they're listening from, have a wonderful rest of their Friday and a good weekend. Yeah. Dexter? Uh, yeah, same thing, you know, just have a good weekend. Uh, you know, I hope, I hope your food tastes good, I guess. (laughs) Uh, you know, have some, go have some cheeseburgers, man. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Hey, New Yorkers, you know, go eat a bunch of pizza, you know, don't be grateful for how good your pizza is. (laughs) Don't be grateful or be grateful. What? Oh, be be grateful. Yeah. Yeah. Be grateful. I was going to say, don't be don't take it for granted, and then I just change. It's it. all right. <laughs> but yeah, this this is a really random thing to say, but be grateful that you live in a city with such good pizza because nowhere else. Uh, not better than Jersey pizza. I'm sorry. No, Jersey pizza is trash. Uh, oh, you're wrong. I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> Watch who you're talking to. <laughs> you uh, have two Jersey people. Here. I, I was yeah. going to say that that Chicago people would be the ones that are mad, but damn, you <laughs> Jersey people are. Very we're very ter- we're very defensive of our mm-hmm. state's greatness, but that is going to be it. Thanks again to Sabil and Dexter. I'm Danny DiCrescenzo signing off. And in the words of Drake, make sure the young money ship is never sinking. Monday, mon- uh, mo- Monday morning wake up call with Matt and Nathan will return next week. <laughs>